Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Well, Stephanie and I, thank you very much for your um, birthday greetings. Um, That was very kind of you. Um, I think it might be, um, can you hear me? It might be appropriate before um, we get into our reading, uh, if we just also pray, um, there's some great events happening this week and um, some very important times of decision-making, which will affect potentially the lives of millions. And I think it would be good for us as Christians who've sung Our God Reigns uh, to uh, pray very specifically for the um, eight leaders uh, of huge economies and men of unimaginable responsibility um, who have great responsibility lying on them. Um, So let's just pray for all that's going to be happening during the coming days. Father, we commit to you those big discussions coming shortly. We pray, O God, that those men and their collected staffs will not work out of pride and personal agenda, but out of responsibility and compassion for those that are hungry, those that have little hope humanly. God, we pray that there may be, uh, in this time of opportunity, great outcomes that will lead to not just physical and material blessing, but an opening of a door to, to hear you speak and call eternal people into fellowship with an eternal God. So we commit to you the the great events that are potential at the moment. And we ask, Lord, that we may see some breakthroughs. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen. If you'd like a Bible, put your hand up. We have um, a number um, on the window ledges and uh, scattered about near the radiators. And um, keep your hand up until someone brings you one. I think we're, we're getting to a point where we possibly don't even have enough. Oh, there's some more on the... Dad, can you pick up those if there's other folks? Some at the back. Great. Page uh, 1085 um, is going to be our reading. 1085. This is the second in a series of three on the longest recorded prayer that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he prayed much, but we don't know what he prayed on the other occasions. But this particular prayer in John chapter 17 uh, was deliberately set down, and it was prayed out of great concern for the disciples and for you and me. He prays not only for the um, the eleven who were standing around him that night, but he prays for the people down through the centuries who would come to believe um, through their message. Last week, in verses one to eight, we overheard. Jesus reporting back to his father. Come to the end, he knew of his physical life on earth, and he was saying, I have completed, uh, I've done that which you gave me to do. I've revealed your character, father, he said, what you're really like. That was in verse six. And I have given people your words. That's in, in verse eight. And as a result, they are beginning to to understand and experience now eternal life. 
And we notice the challenge of that for ourselves. To live the life and speak the words that come from Christ. Now the focus shifts. As we get to verse 9, the, the focus shifts in the course of this prayer. And he's not now going to be talking so much about his own life and teaching and death and resurrection. Now he's praying for those that stay behind, the disciples. And as we read today's passage, notice how often the word world suddenly starts to appear. But as Jesus' focus is shifting from thinking about heaven to which he is shortly to return and back to the world in which we live and, and we struggle with, he refers to it again and again. It comes 13 times in these 15 verses. It's one of the great um, New, New Testament Greek words that um, has a variety of meanings. It, it's like uh, we have to sort of look carefully to see what the, the word cosmos actually means. It can mean the created universe, the, you know, the solid stuff that you can see outside the window. Uh, Jesus referred to that in verse 5, you know, the glory I had before the, the world the word world, before it began, the creative thing. But sometimes it also means all the people in it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's people. That's not beaches and mountains and trees and beetles and, and stuff. That's, that's you and me. But this word also has a third meaning. It means everything that belongs to this life rather than the next, which Satan, the evil one, will use to seduce us away from God. It's a slightly more complex meaning. Love not the world. In that sense, says John in, in 1 John 2.15. Now we get all three meanings here. Let, let's read. Um, how many of you were not here last week? Okay, welcome. I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter, just so you get the, the context. So we go from verse 1, but we're go actually going to pick it up um, <clears throat> from verse 9 today. After Jesus had said these things, that the previous four chapters, when he'd been talking to the disciples about the Father, now he, begin, he turns and he talks to the Father about the disciples. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. You granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And then, strictly speaking, today's passage. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, 
for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And the glory and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And then we'll leave the last few verses of the prayer to next week. We, we haven't got time um, to squeeze all the juice out of this. Um, in fact, who could, really? This is one person of the Godhead talking to another. <laughs> so the chances of it lulled me really bringing out everything is impossible. But maybe we can catch some of the main points of what Jesus is praying. He's about to depart. And this clearly weighs heavily upon him. The very next day, he will be taken from them, torn from them for 48 hours at the cross. And that will be very revealing of them. It will reveal the fear and uncertainty in them. And then at the ascension, <clears throat> some weeks later, he will be gone from them physically uh, for the rest of their lives as he will return to heaven. Do you ever imagine what goes through the mind of a man who, and it's true in some countries still to this day, who is about to be put in prison for their faith? or even possibly to face the death penalty. And what do they think about, what would a man think about his wife, or about his children, um, left behind? This has happened countless times in Russia, in China, in Vietnam, in Cuba. 
a man who will hear a sentence passed over him in a court. And he will perhaps have one last chance to look into the gallery if there are any strangers allowed and see his wife and his children and then be taken away to Siberia or some labor camp. Not to see them again, perhaps, for decades. And he will think, what will happen to them now that I'm gone? What will happen to their fate? How will they be provided for? What will happen to their witness? What will happen to the characters of my own children in circumstances like that? Is there anything that I can do for them? Well, here we have Jesus praying about the future of the disciples after he is gone from them physically. And he's praying for two things in the verses we read from 9 down to 23, the verses we're concentrating on. He's praying firstly for the preservation and security of their faith. And that is the most important thing for us to think about this morning. And then at the end, in the last few verses, he's praying about the impact, the future, ongoing, rippling impact of their witness on the world. Jesus is most concerned about the state of, of your faith. Is it strong? Are you talking to him? What about? What are you trusting him for? Are you still in touch with him? You see, what happens to some of us is that we become believers, and it's the great time, and, and it happens for the majority of people in this country, uh, between the ages of 18 and 25, those who become believers. But then what happens 10, 20 years down the track to that faith? You, do you know the difference between <clears throat> um, singing a hymn here <clears throat> just because you know the words and it will come out. You don't really think about it very much. And then those times when you sing it with real... Does that... I'm just kind of looking around. Yeah, one, two. Thank you for that nod. <laughs> when, when you feel your faith is engaged, when you really mean it, when it's saying what's important, what can happen to us is that we, we sort of settle down and those times become more and more rare and your faith can actually become quite sort of sluggish. Yes, if you were put up against a wall and a gun was pointed at you, do you believe in Jesus? I suppose I do. I'm going to see him in about 30 seconds. But if you're not in that sort of situation, what happens to your faith? Jesus is very concerned. Could it be, as Jesus thinks of his disciples, these ones that he knows so well, that he's lived with now for three years closely, is it possible that discouragement or depression or loss of vision or burnout, exhaustion, persecution, wrong teaching, or in our Western world, boredom or materialism 
could gradually grow up and throttle the livingness of your faith. Does that make sense to you? Could, could any of these things come so severely that it would actually break them? I think the faith of all of us, um, those of us that have been up, you know, in, in public this morning, and those of us sitting right near the back, all of our faiths at times can, can wobble, and we can wonder sometimes, do I really believe this anymore? So it's very important to notice that Jesus prays very deliberately and clearly for the preservation of the faith of his disciples in the future. He says there in verse 9, um, I'm going to pray for them. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. I'm praying for them, making sure of their protection from the hundred different strategies that Satan might use to undermine or weaken or dilute or destroy their faith. And then, if you glance down to verse 20, in that last little section, he says, because his prayer is very carefully organized, he says, my prayer is not just for them alone. I prayed for them. We're going to study what he prays for them. And then, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. I think just the fact that the Lord watches over our faith and prays for us is a tremendous, a massive encouragement. He knows what you face. The illnesses that come, the struggles that don't seem to go away at work, the worries about the family, and so on. So he is saying, I have completed the work you gave me to do on earth. And now I set myself to begin the work that you will give me in heaven. And we're seeing here great example of Jesus' ongoing work, praying for us now. And we notice his tactics and we see the kind of things that, that concern him. In verses 11 and 12, you notice that he commits them to the Father's protection and care. Literally, the Greek says, protect them in your name. Now, we learned last week that the name of God reveals always something of God's character and nature and glory. And the Father had given the fullness of his character, the fullness of his nature, and his glory to his Son. The Son is fully God. And the disciples had come to see that. They'd watched and they'd listened and they'd observed and they'd come to know and understand and believe that he was God and to trust him. He's the Messiah, they began to say. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Son of God. And the disciples needed to be kept loyal to that revelation that Jesus carries the name of God because he is God. The very character of God is in Jesus. He is God. They'd seen it. They were kept believing it. And during his time on earth, Jesus had protected them in that faith and kept them loyal to who he really was, that he was God himself. He says uh, in verse 19, only Judas Iscariot wavered from that and was lost. Now he's praying that the Father will keep them in the same faith. He's handing them back that, that preservation of their faith. He is saying, now, Father, 
I'm coming to you. You take over. It's your responsibility. I'm leaving. Tell me, do you think the father will be less careful? Is he less able to look after you, watch what goes on in your heart and your life and the stuff that you allow and the things that you think about and so on? You've been placed in the father's hand. Now, hearing that and believing that in every true believer will release something of a, a surge of joy and relief. And that is exactly what Jesus expects and says in verse 13. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, while they can still hear me, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. And then from verse 14 comes um, a very closely argued, prayed over section of his prayer. Jesus envisages three different situations. Three different realities that we will face in the life of faith, one after another. And he specifically prays a particular thing about each one of them. These verses are very carefully ordered. Look in verse 14. If you're following, yep, we've got it there. In verse 14, he mentions a situation. The world will hate you. And then in verse 15, he prays a prayer. Protect them from the evil one. And then in verse 16, another situation. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then in verse 17, another request, a prayer. Sanctify them by the truth of your word. And then in verse 18, another situation is envisaged. I am now sending them out into the world. I am commissioning them very shortly to go into the world as missionaries. And then in verse 19, not so much now a third prayer, so much as a promise. I sanctify myself for them, he says. And we must spend some minutes um, opening up that a little bit and understanding what these words actually mean. The first situation, verse 14. He mentions the fact that the world can be a very hostile place to Christians, Christian believers, and there is a very special hostility in the heart of unbelievers provoked by the word of God. In parts of the Muslim world to this day, you will get reports of this every single week, um, particularly in the Christian press, but sometimes even wider than that. Um, it can take very violent forms. There are churches that get attacked and burnt in Indonesia, uh, in Nigeria. Uh, hand grenades get lobbed into Christian communities uh, in Pakistan. Uh, buildings get burnt down. Christians get killed, have their throats cut uh, in certain parts of the world. In parts of the materialistic West, there can be just as much hatred, actually, although the expressions of it um, are often more subtle and less violent. And it's caused, this hatred of Christians, says Jesus, by the truth of my word. His word, when it comes, causes division. It exposes sin. It demands repentance. And people hate that. But when you read the stories in the Gospels, the hatred that came upon Jesus wasn't only because uh, he, he spoke of repentance and his word exposed sin. It was very often because of his message of mercy and forgiveness and salvation too. That's what made the Jews want to kill him. 
that he insisted that his father was the God of Gentiles, the God of women, the God of, of disabled people, the God of all people, because he is a God whose heart overflows with love, whom the leaders in society had tended to marginalize and um, mistreat. That's why Jesus was hated. That's why Jesus was crucified. And he is now saying that when the disciples identify themselves publicly out on street corners and up and down and around, uh, they will be hated too for the same reasons. And so, at verse 14, verse 15, comes Jesus' prayer. Not for their removal from this persecution and hatred. He doesn't say, get them all out of it, quick, you know, keep them nice, safe in some little, you know, hermetically sealed dustbin somewhere. No, but they will be protected from the evil one. Because Satan seeks to use the world's hostility to frighten sometimes and to discourage and to threaten and to divert, seduce. And so Jesus has total confidence at this point, not in the disciples, oh no, but in the Father. He says, watch over their faith. And in the midst of the world's hatred, don't let them go. They may stray, they may get cold-hearted, don't let them go. Protect them ultimately from the evil one. Keep them, bring them through, strengthen their heart. As Jesus leaves those disciples, he wants you, in the Father's care, to be talking to him, to be trusting him, to be in communication, to be listening to his warning. Because there isn't any way in which a Christian can expect to slip through and avoid the hatred of those that are, in the end, godless and hate the Father. The second situation comes in verse 16 where he says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now that sounds like um, he's just repeating what he's already said in verse 14. Well, it is a repetition. He's using the same words, but it isn't merely a repetition. In verse 14, he was explaining why the world hates and will hate the disciples. It is because they're different. Here in verse 16, he is explaining why the Father should surround them with his love and protection. Because you are one of his. You are not of the world. You don't belong to the world. You haven't got the same destiny as the world. You are one of those that belong to the Father. You're not of the world. That's why he should love you and protect you and care for you. Jesus' prayer, then, is because they are not of the world, you have a different destiny, altogether different future, different character, different purpose. He then prays this word we sometimes find difficult, sanctify them. What it actually means is, out of all the mass of people swirling and milling around, set them apart. Keep them special. Use them uniquely. Let me give you an illustration, to, perhaps uh, from the scriptures, to try and help you understand that. There were various utensils that were regularly in use in the Jewish temple. They had bowls and plates and spoons and stuff for all the temple um, services. And, of course, in temple service, they had to be spotlessly clean. 
Any defilement had to be cleansed off immediately, otherwise they were unusable. But it wasn't enough for those vessels in the temple use merely to be clean. I mean, in the streets of Jerusalem, in practically every Jewish house clustered around the temple, there would have been loads of clean dishes and pots and vessels and spoons and so on. But that didn't, simply because they were clean, make them usable in the temple. They were only usable in the temple if they had been devoted to the Lord and were given entirely over to his use and were not simultaneously put to any other use. So it is with Christ's disciples. You have been made clean. All the disciples have been made clean. John uh, records Jesus saying it in chapter 15, just a few chapters earlier. You've been made clean by the word which is in you. But in order to maintain your devotion to the Lord, your sanctification, the word of truth, God's own word must dwell in you and guide you and teach you and flush through you and keep your mind clear. Otherwise, what happens without that in practice is that we drift back into the world. We become indistinguishable from it. We lose our usefulness. Keep them sharp, Father, Jesus is praying. By your word, by that listening to it, by the being cleansed by it. Can you imagine a bat? You know how bats fly? They can't actually see, and they have the kind of radar. You spend a lot of time looking at me thinking, where is he going now? What on earth is he going to say? And I, I, kind of, I struggle with this sort of feeling of, mm. you, you know that bats work with radar, don't you? Yeah. Can you imagine a bat whose radar, I don't know whether this, does actually happen, but it had been sort of screened off. You know, how it would fly. It would fly along and bang. I was watching a, a bumblebee. No, it was a, it was a blue bottle in, in my room the other day. Flying absolutely, I don't know how they do this. They fly head on into the window, you know, bang, and, and sort of stagger about, and then fly in again. You imagine a bat flying like that. Mm-hmm. With me? It's hopeless, isn't it? But supposing you could restore its capacity to to see by radar. He's actually praying that his disciples, because of their ongoing living relationship with the Word of God, will have their, their radar restored so that they can be guided and taught and know what they're doing. That was the second situation. Sanctify them by the Word of Truth. Keep them set apart, special, useful, sharp, by your word. And then the third situation comes in verse 18, where he says, we are sent out into the world, not to be withdrawn between our high walls of meetings and so on, like some kind of Christian secret society. No, we are commissioned into the world, dangerous and hostile, though he's already been saying it is. And Jesus responds to this in verse 19, not with a prayer to his father, but now with a promise. You notice the difference. He says, I sanctify myself for them. Not in the sense of cleansing from sin. He had none. He did none. But in the sense of consciously committing himself, setting himself apart for two great tasks. To give himself as the Lamb of God 
to be the Savior of the world, taking away our sin, the great sacrifice on the cross. He would do that in utter sinlessness the next day. And then secondly, to devote himself from then on as our advocate and representative in heaven, watching over our faith, our needs, our defeats, our struggles, and so on. So Christ's prayer at this point, concerned as he is for the livingness, the vibrancy of the faith of these disciples, he prays for protection from the evil one. He prays about the provision of God's word to keep us listening to his voice, keep us sure-footed and sharp, and the promise of the Lord's continuing personal commitment to us. And then, finally, quickly, verses 20 to 23, he then changes track. I mean, in verse 20, you saw how he says, my prayer is not now for them alone, but I'm praying for other believers, us. As he looks down through the centuries and the increasing millions of men and women around the world who will believe as a result of that faithful witness of the original apostles, he wants to pray for them too. And the thing that he prays is that we might all be one in verse 21, I don't believe this is a vague, sentimental, mushy kind of unity um, that means little and is never tested. Certainly, I don't believe that it is an organizational or bureaucratic unity dependent upon hierarchy and doctrinal statements and lines you mustn't cross or some new kind of pan-evangelical denomination. And the reason why I don't believe that is because Jesus immediately goes on to explain in order that we don't misunderstand. Explain exactly what kind of a unity it is that he's talking about. It is the same unity that he has with the Father. It is a matter of all believers being equally in Christ and in the Father and Christ and the Father being in them. He's praying that this will happen and will grow a profound spiritual unity which will outlast this life and any organization here. This is a thing that which will go on into heaven, into glory. At this point, as Jesus is standing there and the disciples are sort of around listening to him pray, there was no sense in which the disciples were in Christ. How could they be? Physically, they were standing some yards separate from him. It was not possible for them to be in Christ until the Holy Spirit was sent. At this point in the garden, they're, they're like a football team um, with a captain. The captain stands here and the other players are over there or, or a political party with a, a leader and then a whole bunch of other people that can vote or not. They choose. But in answer to this prayer in John 17, God would on the day of Pentecost send the Holy Spirit and at that point, the believers were placed in Christ and the Spirit of God took up residence in them. This is an utterly unique thing. Nobody in the ancient world would have dreamed of saying, I am in Socrates or I'm in Plato. And more than anyone nowadays would say, I'm in Richard Dawkins or I'm in Sir Alec Ferguson. This is a spiritual reality which lasts. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul says, It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, 
who has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, holiness, and redemption, and so on. In a few weeks, I shall be up at the Keswick Convention enjoying that. And they have a big sort of banner over the, the platform, which simply says, all one in Christ Jesus. And people are drawn in from different nationalities and different um, denominational backgrounds and human and organizational backgrounds. And this proclaims the unity that this is talking about. It's a profound spiritual unity being in Christ and God in us. The New Testament in other places use the analogy of the body. Um, there are different parts to the body. There's the ears and there's eyes and there's hands. and It's all part of the one body. Different function, but part of the one body. This oneness comes about by believing the one gospel that the apostles were now commissioned to go out into the world to preach. And as a result of this oneness being thought about, being cared about, being practiced, Jesus says that people will come to believe in the message, in the gospel. This is so vital. They come into contact, this is God's intention, with you with a different spirit. You see what I mean? They meet you with a different spirit. And they bump into someone else with a different kind of spirit. This is the Lord's plan. This is the key to evangelistic impact. The unbelievers sense that all true believers have one thing in common. And they meet it, I mean, they meet it in rich and poor. They meet it in educated and not so educated. They meet it in, in uh, teenagers and, and old dodderers like me who had far too many birthdays. They meet the, the whole thing. They meet the same. This sense that our witness is not that you should come and join so-and-so, such a church, come and join the mic. No, come to Christ. There is a living, indestructible unity between the believer and Christ. There is a new spirit within the believers who are different in so many ways, but Christ dwells within them. And when the unbeliever bumps into that and remembers, meets that spirit of Christ, they are drawn inevitably, says the Lord Jesus, to the kingdom. Jesus summarizes it in verses 22 and 23. The glory that the Father gave to Jesus was to have the Father dwelling in him. The very nature of God in Christ was and is the glory of Christ. And now that same glory is given to us. That's what the beginning of verse 23 says. The Father was in Christ, and now both are in us. And Christ prays that that actual spiritual oneness, together and with the Lord, will grow. It will be developed and it will increase. And as this process develops, there will arise in our hearts an ever-increasing sense of being loved by God. There's no verses. The sense that God loves you every bit as much as he loves his son. That is a remarkable privilege to enter into that. To live in the light of that. To lean on the strength of that. To let your life be guided and driven and preserved by the reality of that. Because we, to conclude, we live in a loveless world, don't we? People in their hundreds of thousands can march in the streets 
or they can stand in Hyde Park, uh, they can sing their hearts out, they can enjoy a day, but they go home very often to lives of selfishness. And people can meet and discuss matters around a table so easily, while millions are starving, and thousands have died before they've even had the end of the conversation. It's a, it's a loveless world. It's an insecure world, restless. People are desperate for affection and for belonging. And we also live in a world where people get divided very easily, and they get bitter. And they allow roots of bitterness to, to go deep, and, and they become resentful, and they, they hold on to hurts that they imagine that they've suffered. There's a lack of identity and peace and wholeness, and people have no one to pray to. What Jesus is praying about to his Father here is the answer. It is the gospel. One of Christ's death on the cross to bring us salvation from everything that separates us from the Father. Everything in the past. Salvation free and full from all that. And two, He's praying about our filling with God's Holy Spirit to give us hope and direction and the power to change in the future. Those twin and inseparable parts of the gospel. That is what he wants the disciples to be strong in and to be confident about as they go out and, and speak. What attracts people to the kingdom of God is not, you see, something coming from our personalities can never be. It comes entirely from this, that Christ lives in us and that we are loved by God and don't deserve it. Be strong in faith. Be bold in witness. For the Lord your God loves you and cares for you and will one day say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. And then we'll sing our last song. What was it? Okay. Father, we thank you that we can just um, overhear from a distance those words that, that swelled up in the heart of your Son, our Savior. We thank you, Father, for, for protecting those disciples. We thank you, Father, for embracing us in this gospel of forgiveness and love. May we be one with you. May the world notice something different about your people. And Lord, come back soon, we pray, to bring the world's misery to an end and to bring to fulfillment and completion the glory of the only Savior that there is, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org.
www.gotbless.org. God bless.